0: I came to see that uh, every music had something that I loved in it. I have always tried to make it clear that my work is not a rejection of anything. My work is only possible because of what I've learned from the great artists who've come before me. Uh, Whether we're talking of uh, the great blues tradition in Chicago or bossa nova, I love it, Period.
1: That was 2014 NEA Jazz Master, composer and musician Anthony Braxton. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Anthony Braxton's music goes where few have imagined. Although he can play a saxophone in the jazz tradition that can rival anyone, his own compositions are more difficult to characterize. Think of the American music of John Coltrane. Albert Eiler, and Ornette Coleman. Marrying, or at least going steady with the 12-tone European tradition embraced by Schoenberg, Webern, and Berg. Add the a-thematic compositions of Stockhausen, the narrative sweep of Richard Wagner, and a dash of the down-home blues of Chicago's South Side, and you may, perhaps, find the jumping off point for Anthony Braxton's music. For the past 50 years, Anthony Braxton has pushed his music in all directions. Although one of his early releases for alto is considered a landmark jazz solo instrumental recording, Braxton is equally at home composing large-scale musical projects, such as Composition 82 for four orchestras, or the ghost trance music in which he creates a melody that doesn't end with performers determining what parts to play. His falling river music uses large, colorful drawings as its musical scores, and again, lets the musicians determine what parts to play and when to play them. Perhaps most ambitiously, he's in the midst of composing the Trillium series, a cycle of interconnected operas that will ultimately comprise 36 one-act works that can be presented in various combinations. Anthony Braxton teaches at Wesleyan University. He's received a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1994 and was honored with the Doris Duke Performing Artist Award for Lifetime Achievement in Jazz in 2013. Although he embraces jazz in all its forms and sees it as the foundation of his own work, Braxton was amazed to find himself named a 2014 NEA Jazz Master.
0: I was very surprised for the last 50 years and some. The jazz community has pushed me back, and I could respect that. In the interim, I came to see my work as in a kind of in-between space. It's not jazz, not classical, not black, not white. And so uh, at 68 uh, years old, suddenly to receive a call from the National Endowment of the Arts was quite a surprise. What a wonderful honor. I'm grateful that this has happened. Certainly I admire the men and women who have gone before me. And for something like this to happen in my senior period, uh, I must say life is really something. Let
1: me ask you, you say that your music isn't jazz, isn't classical, isn't black, isn't white. What would you say that it is?
0: I see my work as an affirmation of universality, as an affirmation of our wonderful country. I have deep love for America. I see my work as springing from a, a base that can be called jazz, and from that base I was able to explore world music. And so my work is an affirmation of my experiences, like everyone else, and my experiences have been universal experiences. And this was deliberate, because what I was looking for was not an ethnic-centric solution to anything, but rather, with my music, there was an opportunity to uh, bring things together rather than to separate things.
1: Tell us when and where you were born.
0: I was born in uh, Chicago, Illinois, June 4, 1945, and uh, had the experience of growing up in the middle of the south side of Chicago. After first uh, being very involved in rock and roll as a young guy, uh, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, Bill Haley and the Comets were my heroes as a young guy, at the age of say, 11, somewhere around 10 or 11, I uh, would discover the great music of Ahmed Jamal. As a young guy, I wanted to play trumpet like my hero Miles Davis. It was only because of an accidental opportunity that I would have a chance to hear an LP that uh, immediately changed my whole life. That LP was Jazz at the College of the Pacific, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, and the first composition on the LP was All the Things You Are. By the time of the completion of the first composition, my whole life had changed. From that point, I would uh, move towards the alto saxophone.
1: When did you first start studying music? When did you study an instrument? How old were you?
0: 11 or 12. And what was it? I went to Chicago Vocational High School. This was uh, the first opportunity to actually be in a band, uh, to have music as part of the curriculum. And uh, so I joined the band and started with clarinet. And it was wonderful for me because I was always very excited by music. As my parents began to understand that I was serious about it, my father bought me uh, O's Opera alto saxophone and I started taking lessons at the Chicago School of Music under Mr. Jack Gale. And I would study with Mr. Gale for something like seven, eight, or nine years. And then after high school, went to Wilson Junior College where I began to meet musicians who were interested in the same same kind of things I was interested in.
1: You were in the Army, the U.S. Army, and you joined the band. Tell me about that.
0: I took a test uh, and was fortunate to pass, and I joined the 5th Army Band, uh, which uh, was stationed in Highland Park. And I was in the Army for three years. I spent training uh, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And then I had two years in Seoul, Korea, where I had uh, my first opportunity to have experiences outside of the country. I had opportunities to travel all over Korea, including the DMZ. And then came back to America, took courses at Roosevelt University.
1: When you returned to Chicago, you joined the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Tell me about that organization.
0: After coming home uh, from South Korea, In the first week, I went to a concert of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, the AACM. And suddenly, I met men and women who were interested in the same kind of things I was interested in.
1: What year was this?
0: This was 1966. Up until 1966, I had always found myself the odd guy out. And um, the AACM was unique in the sense that it was a group of people who found one another. And we were all interested in the, the innovative changes that were starting to appear in the music. And so the, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians was a, a group of uh, spiritualists who were trying to search uh, for what is the meaning of music? What is music all about anyway? Is it just about writing a song and making $800 billion dollars Why do we love music so much? It was one of the best things that had ever happened to me uh, to discover this group of incredible musicians. Very little work. Nobody had any money. We all come from poverty. And no one would give an inch with respect to their aesthetics and their music. And so for the next three years, uh, lots of concerts, experimentation, we had time in Chicago to work on our music and to figure out what we were trying to do. The record companies were not there in the same way that um, the musicians in New York had. So from that point, by 1969, I had uh, discovered what my music could be if I worked hard.
1: Now is this when you started listening to Webern and Stockhausen?
0: I started listening to Schoenberg in Wilson Junior College, and so I count uh, the great music of Arnold Schoenberg as part of the family of musics that's molded my uh, my work. And uh, going back to Chicago and studying at Roosevelt University, when John Coltrane passed, it was a uh, a profound uh, experience for me because Mr. Coltrane meant so much to me and I discovered the great music of Karl Heinz Stockhausen and his work would have a profound effect on me in the same way uh, as uh, John Coltrane or Arnold Schoenberg. It would be at that point that I began to explore the 20th century uh, notated musics, the trans-European musics and I discovered that that the great trans-European modernist would complete my equation in every way. And it would be at that point that uh, I would begin to look at myself as an instrumentalist and a composer. It helped clarify to me what I had to do in my life. Your album for Alto, when did you record that? I recorded for El in 1966, and I recorded for El because I wasn't strong enough as a pianist to do a solo concert. I have always had a great love for solo piano music, uh, especially Schoenberg and Stockhausen, and so I made the decision to do the solo music on the Alto saxophone, which is my strongest instrument. you dedicated
1: for alto to Cecil Taylor and to John Cage why those two?
0: From the beginning I have tried to use the music to establish personal connections or uh, to honor the men and women who have helped me so this was merely an attempt to say thank you to uh, Mr. Cage Thank you to Cecil Taylor for uh, the inspiration that they gave me. This was the period where Bob Dylan was starting to come out. The times they are changing. Uh, Rolling Stones, uh, "Sympathy for the Devil." All of these musics were changing. The Hate Ashbury scene of acid rock and Jimi Hendrix. And I remember saying to the Cosmics how grateful I was to be born with all these opportunities happening. And so um, every composition I would try to, uh, if it made sense, to uh, say thank you to one of my heroes or heroines as a symbolic gesture and as a personal gesture for compositions dedicated to friends.
1: When did you begin to listen to Charlie Parker?
0: I listened to Charlie Parker as a young guy, six, seven, or eight, and my Uncle Willie said, no, this is a guy you have to listen to. So I put it on. And it was too difficult, it was like, what is this? What's this guy doing? And then he said, well, you need to check out Coltrane. And I'd listen to Mr. Coltrane, and I found myself thinking, why does he play so many notes? This is, this is not jazz, where's the melody?
1: <laughs> out of your mouth. Uh, oh. <laughs>
0: It's incredible, but if you had met me in my uh, teens, I sounded like the New Orleans guys uh, with respect to tradition. And the music of Charlie Parker, I couldn't hear Charlie Parker. I could only hear him after listening to Paul Desmond and Warren Marsh and Jackie McLean and John Coltrane, and then I went back. We tend to, when thinking about music and how to listen to music, we tend to think you start at Bach and then you go forward, or you start at Louis Armstrong and you go forward. I've never agreed with that perspective. My experience has been you start with whatever pushes your button, and then you go forward and backwards at the same time. That's what I've tried to do.
1: When did you revisit Charlie Parker?
0: I started revisiting Charlie Parker in the Army, just as if you're in, in France, the country, all signs are leading to Paris. And it's kind of the same in music. You start playing improvised music, trying to understand the fifth restructural cycle music that we call bebop. All roads would lead to the great work of Charlie Parker. And I'm still listening to it, of course, just like I'm still listening to Bach and Beethoven.
1: You lived in Paris for a while, but when you moved there, you had very little money.
0: I left for Paris with... I had a one-way ticket. I had $50 in my pocket. My motto was play or die. And I went to Paris, and uh, I changed the money. I took a taxi cab into Montparnasse, which took something like $30. So I had $20 left. We're going down the street of Montparnasse. I look out the window. There's Steve McCall, the master percussionist from Chicago. I had heard he was there. I asked the driver of the taxi to stop, called out for Steve. And he said, you could come and stay with me and my family as you get adjusted to Paris. And it was the Cosmics, again, helping me out, since I have not always been what one would call a practical person. You were in a, a trio. Did you go to France alone? I went to France al- alone, but there was agreement with uh, Leroy Jenkins and Leo Smith that they would also be coming. They took a boat over. I had to get out of Chicago quick. I took the plane (laughs) and about a month or two later they arrived and we had a a co-op group we called the creative construction company and uh, that is
1: a great name
0: thank you and and Steve McCall uh, would join the group as well and so the creative construction company lasted for something like two years and it was a wonderful period for me
1: Ornette Coleman he was in France when you were in France wasn't he yes Talk about you and Ornette in France.
0: Arnold Coleman came to our concerts, and it was my first opportunity to meet the great man. And he asked us to play uh, the first half on a concert that he was doing in Paris. It was a symbolic gesture to endorse us. And after the concert, he invited me to live with him in New York because I had never been to New York. And he said, uh, well, if you decide to come to New York, you can stay with me He at a large place. And so Leroy Jenkins and I would, uh, a year later, come to New York, and we would uh, stay with Arnold Coleman. This was in Soho at the time, in Prince Street. And uh, I learned a great deal from, the, from this incredible master. Arnold Coleman is a point of definition for the modern African-American composer, actually for the modern American composer. He is such a, an original person, and he's such a kind person. And so my experience with Ornette would start at that point.
1: When you came back to New York, how did you support yourself? How did you make a living?
0: Uh, I made my living in New York by hustling chess. Every now and then, a concert would come up. It was very little work for me playing my own music. And so it was chance concert performance that would come up but mostly playing chess.
1: Describe what a chess hustler does.
0: A chess hustler goes to Washington Square Park and will play X amount of games and let the other person win. And uh, when the big money comes up, then you win. And I try to not be incorrect and take all the money, but that was how I made my living. And then I would lose the money going to play with the grandmasters. So in the end, I was always broke anyway. <laughs> I would take the normal players, beat them, and maybe go out and have a McDonald's hamburger since uh, that was my McDonald's period. So New Yorker uh, in that period was uh, incredible for me. It was exciting. I didn't need much money. All I wanted to do was play chess, play music, have some brown rice and an egg or something, have a, a Big Mac or two. I want to jump forward just a little bit
1: and talk about the recordings you did for Arista. When was this?
0: The recordings for Arista began in 1974. They were building a new label, and so it was very exciting. And I had a contract with uh, Arista Records, which was quite an opportunity. And so I was uh, able to do projects for Arista up until 1979. How many records did Arista produce of yours? Something like eight or nine projects, including projects that involve multiple records, like uh, Composition 82 for four orchestras. Originally that was a four LP set. I was able to do projects that were not considered quote-unquote jazz. Because of my good fortune to have met Michael Kuskuna and Steve Backer, I had two friends and allies who would help me to uh, document my music, including secret projects that the big office was not looking at.
1: You did an album with Max Roach.
0: Yes, I was very uh, fortunate to do a, a recording with Max Roach. I was fortunate to get to know him. First, I was surprised to know that the great man uh, had chosen me i didn't choose him i would never ever have even suggested that i walk across the street while he was playing i worshipped the ground he wa- he walked on it was max roach who decided he wanted to do a project with me and of course my answer was yes 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 sir and so we walked into the studio he had nothing to say to me And I said, "Uh, Mr. Roach, uh, good afternoon, sir. Is uh, everything okay? Nothing to say. He turned to the engineer. He says, "Turn on the tape. Let's play." (laughs) So we start playing. Yes, Mr. Roach. Everything was one in one swoop. There was no breaks. After the recording was finished, he said, Anthony, how are you? And that's when our relationship started. After the recording, we became friends. The old master checked me out to see if I was on a level where it was worth it. And after we finished playing, then he actually kind of embraced me and took me in. I was the luckiest guy on the planet.
1: You did just a great CD called Six Monk. Compositions.
0: Yes, the record, The Great Music of Thelonious Monk, was um, an incredible opportunity to play and meet my old friend Mel Waldron. It's important for me to say that my work was not a rejection of anything. I approached my work as an affirmation of the things I've learned about. And as such, at various uh, time and spaces, I would go back and record uh, traditional material because I still love the tradition. Uh, I just didn't want a concept of tradition that would take away from my responsibility to meet the challenges of the time space that I was born.
1: What is your relationship to tradition?
0: My relationship with tradition is I love the tradition, whether it's the Michigan State Marching Band, whether it's the great work of Johnny Mathis, My relationship to the tradition is uh, just like my relationship to America. I uh, grew up listening to the Sons of the Pioneers. After all, I was a Roy Rogers guy. I uh, grew up listening to the great music of Lawrence Welk with his incredible orchestra. And I came to see that uh, every music had something that I loved in it. Uh, My work is only possible because of what I've learned from the great artists who've come before me. Uh, Whether we're talking of uh, the great blues tradition in Chicago or bossa nova, I love it. Period.
1: You once said that the real tradition is creativity.
0: Yes, uh, I did say that. The real tradition is creativity, doing your best, and trying to meet the challenges of your time period. That's the tradition that we've been given, Uh, as opposed to the idea of tradition used as a political weapon to say what you can't do. Tradition, in my opinion, says this has all been done, and you need to learn the fundamentals and respect the last uh, 2,000, 3,000 years of documented music, but don't let that be an excuse to not find your own work.
1: start teaching
0: I started teaching in 1966 at the AACM School of Music and from that point I had uh, various two-week stays at different universities and this kind of thing somewhere in 1985 I was married I had three children and I found myself at a crossroads it's one thing to live on hostess Twinkies when you live by yourself or to have McDonald's. It's another thing when you have three children and a wife. And here I am playing music, and suddenly it it became clear to me that, hmm, I don't want to prejudge my situation, but it's looking like I'm not working, and there's no money coming in. And I don't mean to be negative, but is uh, this an indication that I've just been going the wrong way and making mistakes? It wouldn't be the first time I've made mistakes. Mistakes is one of the few areas that I consider myself a virtuoso in. And then the doorbell rang, Western Union. I opened it, It it's David Rosenboom saying, Anthony, we need you to come to Mills College. You would be perfect, and we want you to come and be with us. And suddenly, uh, it was the cosmic saving me again, Uh, just like in Paris. Only a nut cake would go to Paris with $50 in his pocket. David Rosenbaum gives me a second chance to be alive and to protect my family. And it was because of that that I uh, went into academia and went and had five beautiful years uh, at Mills College.
1: How long have you been here at Wesleyan?
0: I've been at Wesleyan for 23 years.
1: You're known as a teacher who forms very strong relationships with students. You perform with them, you record with them, you work with them long after they are your students. Taylor Ho Bynum is probably the best example. He's a former student who's now a frequent collaborator.
0: Part of my responsibility, I feel, as an educator, is to work with young people. I was always working with young people before going into academia. And the way I see it, uh, you need to have uh, mentoring. And so uh, to have the opportunity to come to Wesleyan University uh, where the students are outrageously brilliant. And so whenever it's possible, I try to take uh, the students out on the road or do a recording project with them to give them experiences because I've had so many people who have helped me as a young guy. And a uh, part of receiving that kind of help says when you get to be a, a grown person, then you have to do the same for the next generation. You have to help the generation uh, under you to have experiences, help them understand what they're getting into, or help them to find what their path is in life. And so uh, the decision to work with young people was a dynamic decision because on top of everything else playing with a guy like Taylor Bynum makes me work harder and and not only that, it gets really beautiful. Uh, I start off being the teacher but I end up being the student. In
1: 1994, you were named a MacArthur Fellow. Not a bad year.
0: 1994 was an incredible year for me. But let me be clear, I have never made any money from my music. In fact, Part of uh, the decision to embrace music as a life's work for me involved um, the understanding that uh, I wasn't going to make any money from my music. And when a good concert would come up and suddenly I'm really being paid, with that money I would pour it back into my music. Uh, And so when I say I I haven't made any money from my music, I'm not saying that as a way of saying I'm unhappy and someone owes me something because I've been working hard. I don't feel that way at all. In fact, if I had money, I would pay people to listen to my music. And so suddenly 1994 comes around and the MacArthur people gave me a fellowship. And I was very uh, surprised and very happy. And so because of that decision by the MacArthur people, I was able to get a Trillium Aura performed, my first opera uh, that was performed.
1: Can you briefly tell us about this project and what drew you to opera?
0: Thank you for this question, because I had a thing against opera. Okay, fade out, fade back. I go to see Wojciech of Albenberg, And it was an incredible experience. It hit me just like experiencing the music of John Coltrane at the Plug Nickel. And suddenly I'm listening to opera, and it's it's finally clicking for me. And uh, I would even say this. One of my primary uh, influences in the past decade has been the great work of Richard Wagner, It's because of Wagner, in the end, that I would make the decision to build an opera cycle that would celebrate the verbals of my music system. And so uh, opera has become very important to me. Storytelling, songs have become very important to me. I'm even interested in harmony. It's just a question of having enough time to do everything. But most certainly, uh, the opera cycle and the decision to move into storytelling is all connected to my awakening to the great music of Richard Wagner.
1: You also composed the Falling River music, which is a graphic score. Explain a little bit of the thinking behind the graphic score, which aside from anything else, they're very beautiful.
0: Uh, Thank you. I needed a balance between the traditional notated music, which is rigorous and a lot of fun, but I wanted to find processes that could help me have the kind of balance that I was seeking. And so the Falling River musics would be the beginning of new models that would explore intuitive processes and, and intuitive decisions as a way to balance stable logic decisions. And so image as a part of the music score would suddenly bring in intuition in a way that uh, was fresh and balancing for me.
1: When you listen to music, do you translate the sound to images?
0: Yes. I see sound, I've always been interested in the geometry and properties of shape. And so color, the lighter the color, uh, the higher the pitch or the faster the pitch, the darker the color, the slower the music, moving into different timbre areas, and the lower the pitch.
1: I really want you to talk about Composition 19.
0: Well, Teller was one of the conductors on Composition <laughs> 19. I wrote Composition 19, I think in 1971, something like that. I had my first performance what, a couple of years ago, and I tell my students... Don't just sit around waiting for someone to come and give you a grant and then you'll write the music. Rather, use the time that you have and do your work, Uh, which is to say, if you hear something and write it out, sooner or later it'll be performed.
1: Explain a little bit what it is.
0: Composition uh, number 19 is four groups of 25 tubas who are also moving in in a group. There are four different movements in Composition 19, and each movement demonstrates uh, some aspect of change. And so you have four groups in an area space uh, marching in different directions. Position 19 would come about because of my love for parade music. I'm a parade kind of guy. I love the wonderful music of John Philip Sousa. Uh, When I was in the army, I was in heaven because we were marching all over the place, playing parades. I haven't heard a march that I can't find something that I love in it. And so number 19 was a opportunity to use uh, the tubers moving around in the space, and I was really surprised to find that there would be an opportunity to finally hear number 19.
1: You mentioned the Tricentric Foundation. Explain just briefly what your goals are with the Tricentric Foundation.
0: Okay, the Tricentric Foundation became important to me on many different levels. More and more musicians like myself find themselves marginalized. There's very little focus and support for what we do. And I found myself thinking, I want to be a part of putting something together that would be universal, that would help the men and women of this time period discover their community and to know that they are not alone, like I felt as a young guy until I discovered the AACM. And so the Tricentric Foundation is a kind of... um, a reformation of the AACM, uh, but there are differences. The AACM came together on the south side of Chicago. It was ethnic-centric, that is to say, uh, comprised mostly 99% of African-Americans. The Tri-Centric Foundation is a universal community. And one of the reasons to put it together was to, to bring people together so that they can know that they are part of a community and not alone. And so what I would like to hope for is that the Tri-Centric Foundation is the beginning of a new attempt to establish in every city and all over our country, organizations dedicated to creativity. Creativity not controlled by the marketplace, but creativity as defined by the men and women who are uh, creative. And so the Tri-Centric Foundation is really the beginning of a global attempt to unleash the forces of creativity. I'd like to hope that like the AACM, in the next decade, the Tricentric Foundation, maybe we could have a school for children and teach music free like we did in the AACM. We used to go to the parents' homes and pick up the child and drive the child to Lincoln Center in Chicago and give um, a nice hot lunch and then music instructions. It was like, you know, that's for, our responsibility is we have, to, we have to do this. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? We have children growing up. They get no music in grammar school. They get no music in high school. And we wonder, what's happening with our culture? Well, maybe what's happening with our culture is that we're not giving um, all of our citizens the possibilities that they need to be able to find something to hold on to. I have no idea what my life would have become had I not discovered music. It would be very different from what has transpired. And so the tricentric foundation is saying, we have the talent, life is worth living, and uh, we have to find a way to have people engaged because we have the talent.
1: I was actually going to end by asking, what's next? What are you looking forward to? But I think you just answered
0: that. Oh, we've got much more that we're
1: looking forward to. <laughs> Anthony Braxton, thank you, thank you so much. And many, many congratulations on an honor that's so richly deserved. That was 2014 NEA Jazz Master, Anthony Braxton. Anthony Braxton and the other 2014 NEA Jazz Masters will be honored with a concert and ceremony on January 13th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York City. The NEA is webcasting the event live. Go to arts.gov for details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. We're taking two weeks off for the holidays. We return on January 9th with our final 2014 NEA Jazz Master, pianist Keith Jarrett. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>